Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 170. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we are thankful that you have answered our prayers in so quickly. We prayed prayers of healing for those in our close communities, and you have reached out and you have applied your hand of healing and touched them. And now most of them that I'm aware of are uh, back into regular mode. And so um, we're so thankful that you are a father who listens to his children's requests. Of course, Lord, we know you're looking out for us uh even if we don't always understand how you're um, uh, moving amongst us and 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 uh, in our midst, um, we recognize that it's by your faithfulness um, that we can know for certain that uh, you are here, and so we we're grateful for that. Help us again during our um, our Torah study tonight. Help us to retain um, the information that's pertinent the uh, information that you want us to hear help us to help the words to um, help us to take the words and uh, apply them and to allow them to penetrate into our being and so that we can make practical application we want to people be uh, people that are pleasing to you um, be with those who wanted to make it tonight but couldn't uh, for one reason or another bless them where they're at and we'll be careful to give you praise and glory Bashem Yeshua Amen Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and let's start out with um, uh, section one or um, uh, segment one, um, an examination of Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen. This is a brand new study we've started just last week. Uh, the subtitles are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another, and so kind of the short title is Judaism v Christianity or something like that. Um, Last week, we started into the section known as Introduction and Replacement Theology, so let's pick up where we left off there. Basically, we all we did was we defined uh, a Replacement Theology using CARM's website. So let's look at that definition real quick on the screen. Let me read it for you. Replacement Theology is the teaching that the Christian Church has replaced national Israel regarding the plan, purpose, and promise of God. That's the kind of the, the dictionary definition that you're going to hear from um, most sources. Karm is just one representative. What comes part and parcel with this idea of replacing one people group with another is the idea that um, Israel is out, the church is in, and along with that, Judaism gets pushed out of the picture of importance and Christianity replaces Judaism as a new religion. And of course, along with that, Torah keeping is out or Mosaic law is out. And what gets replaced or what replaces it is New Testament or um, apostolic writings or the gospel um, stories and things like that. So um, all of that kind of fits in together with the same discussion when we talk about replacement theology. And so those are the issues that we're going to be discussing. It's not just talking about has the church replaced Israel, but the study is going to entertain the idea of uh, one religion replacing another, one set of um, scriptures replacing another, promises being swapped out, and things like that. So all of that kind of goes together. Um, I think we're going to find as we go down through it that um, some of the information is very obviously in error, um, if you were to state it that way, as the church replaced Israel. Many Christians aren't comfortable, we're going to read this here in a moment, aren't comfortable um, 
articulating it that way, and that's a good thing. However, practically speaking, if you ask your average garden variety Christian, are you open to keeping the law of Moses? Is it something that you think you should still be doing? Many of them have been trained and taught and told for centuries um, that no, this is something that's been done away with. So even though what I'm trying to say is that your average Christian might not use the words, yes, we have replaced Israel, right? They wouldn't use that terminology, at least maybe not in today's cancel culture um, society where, you know, you get in trouble for uh, speaking ill about someone so quickly because of race sensitivities. Uh, you know, everybody's in a state a status of a state of woke these days, right? So you, pr- so you probably don't wouldn't want to say something as, as inflammatory as that, right? The church has replaced Israel. Um, you might get the, um, you know, the Anti-Defamation League uh, uh, knocking on your door or something like that. Um, but what we do still have is the kind of the latent form of the theology behind replacement theology and supersessionism still running through the um, foundations of the church to where people aren't keen to embracing the law of Moses or considering Judaism as any viable way of life or, or anything like that. So those are the, some of the issues we're going to be looking at. So let's jump all the way down to where we left off last week. So we read those definitions from Karm. Let's pick up our study right here. I say in my own commentary, um, speaking out replacement theology, fortunately, karm.org um, does not espouse to replacement theology, which is why I picked them as one of my um, dictionary definitions. And so in the same article that I just quoted earlier, which we looked at last week, go back and listen to episode number 169, they go on to explain the errors of replacement theology. And as I mentioned, it's not an, a theology that someone in the church is going to openly embrace. Um, most don't. There are some people I've had conversations with that are just absolutely convinced that the, that God's done with Israel, that they had their chance, and that's it. And they point to verse and verse and verse to, to show that's why they believe that what they believe. But let's read what Karm has to say. Um, here's what they say, quote, Though it is true that the church does replace Israel in some areas, such as, and here's their examples, properly representing God on earth, acknowledging the promises of the Messiah, etc. So let me just stop right in the middle of their uh, statement. Notice they say it's true that the church does replace Israel in some areas. So you might even have this... um, this type of discussion with uh, your average Christian, if you're messianic, right? Someone who still, um, or someone who has embraced the laws of Moses or returned to the ancient paths or uh, things like that. Um, if you have an, a conversation with your average Christian um person, then you might hear them say, well, what about, and then they'll say something similar to what Karm just said here. What about um, the fact that Israel has been kind of put in time out. What about the partial hardening, which we're going to look at here in a moment in Romans? What about um, you know Yeshua saying your house has left you desolate? Um, you know you're not going to see me again until you cry, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord," and things like that. What about um, the parables of 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 the um, garden owner, uh, you know, the field owner uh, sending tenants, and then uh, those bad tenants were finally dealt with and new tenants were put in place. You know, all of that is obviously um, speaking about some form of s- establishing um, a new body of governance 
uh, where Israel had failed, right? I mean, Yeshua said, uh, I will build my church, right? The, you are Peter, and, and upon this rock I will build my church, and things like that. So um, we're going to have to talk about those issues. So Karm says there is some replacement going on. Um, and I think that maybe the word replacement is probably a bit um, brash, but uh, I have to agree with I think the, the 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 sentiment that they're trying to express here. I have to agree with that. There's there's maybe I wouldn't use the word replace, but we're, we we do have some um, um, swapping of management, if we want to call it that. So so they say, uh, you know, representing God here on Earth, Judaism has not done a very good job. Israel has um, dropped the ball in many cases, in many respects, um, acknowledging the promise of Messiah, etc. I mean, obviously, if you turn to Judaism and, and seek um, proper Messianic representation, you're not going to find it at all, really, um, unless you turn to Messianic Judaism and account that as part of proper representation, then yes. But for the most part, the church has really picked up that, um, they picked up that responsibility and run with it. So, and, you know, praise God for that. So they continue. Um, so even though the church has replaced Israel in some areas, it is not biblical to say that God is completely done with Israel and that the Christian church is its complete replacement. So they're trying to be very careful in their wording here, I can tell. Um, they don't want to say replacement theology is is completely done away with, but there are like those some of those examples that I gave that we are going to have to look at. Where how do you explain away that? How do you how do you um, interpret those places where clearly um, a new work is being done, um, a new people group is being worked with? Um, does it mean that the old people group is done away with altogether, or does it mean perhaps maybe it's we're going to find out um, one strong possibility and probability is that Israel is simply in a place of lesser importance at the moment, um, where God's uh, you know using uh, the Gentile element of the church of the body of Messiah to accomplish his plans and purposes until such a time as he brings Israel back into the main focus. So um, those are things we're going to be looking at. But first, let's turn to a, pri a primary passage. It's not the only passage we're going to look at in the study, but one of the primary passages that I'll probably reference over and over again, besides the fact that this is a study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17, but one of the passages that I'm going to make use of a lot is the out of the book of Romans, where, let's just read it here. Paul says, uh, starting in verse 25, "...for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of, the, of this mystery." We have to stop right away and ask, who are the you brethren that he's addressing when he says, I don't want you to be uninformed? Obviously, he's talking to the, the church there at Rome, and we learned this in our Roman study, that the word brethren, the Greek word adelphoi or adelphos or adelph, some form of adelphos or adelphon or something, depending on which case we're looking at, you know, plural or singular, in the, in the apostolic scriptures, more often than not refers to brother Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, from, um, you know, representatives from both sides of that part of the uh, community. Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. However, within the context, he's really addressing 
Gentile believers because he's in this nuanced conversation with, we're breaking into context, but he's in the middle of this conversation of explaining how that um, the Gentile wild olive tree has been grafted into this uh, family of Abraham, we could say Jewish family, cultivated olive tree, and thus forming this one new humanity known as the remnant of Israel, um, new in regards of the, of the, uh, of the aspect of there's uh, a larger Gentile element than there was prior. Not new in the sense that there's always been a remnant. Like Isaiah says, um, God has always preserved a remnant. So that part's not new. But when we talk about the one new man in Ephesians, kind of overlapping Romans with Ephesians here, then Paul's simply trying to get us to understand that after Acts chapter 2 and the work of the Holy Spirit, there's this element of the gospel that's not been uh, properly understood by Israel, and it's the bringing in of the Gentiles. So that's the context that Paul wants the brethren to understand the mystery. And this mystery is that Gentiles are being brought into the family of Abraham without having to change their ethnicity and to change their family association. They don't have to undergo any conversion rights and um, switching around of who's your papa, who's your daddy. So um, that's why it was a mystery. Israel didn't see it. It was They were blinded to it. God was, of course, um, aware of what was, what was happening because he planned it from the beginning. So this is this mystery that Paul's talking about, the mystery of the gospel. And again, read Romans 11, chapter 11, with Ephesians, the, really the whole book of Ephesians in mind, particularly chapters 2 through 5, I would say. Uh, that's my recommendation. Do, go back and do that as your homework assignment. So he says, to the Romans here, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice the, that the um, a hardening is partial until Israel has the, and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Some versions um, kind of stress the idea that it's a partial hardening to a part of Israel. So, if that's the case, then replacement theology cannot be factual in all of its um, implications if the hardening is only partial. It's a partial hardening. And it's temporary, meaning only until the Gentiles have come in, which implies that once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that the partial hardening will be removed or something to that effect. He goes on to say, Paul, Paul and thus all Israel will be saved, and I, I take the all there not to be um, speaking of every single Israelite will be saved. Um, rather, it's likely it is simply the largest representation. Israel will be characterized by salvation. Um, and then he goes on to quote, uh, this is a quote from the Tanakh, just as it is written, Quote, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Speaking about, you know, national cleansing and atonement um, on Israel's part, which would, of course, result in the blindness being removed and the um, reincorporating of her as a primary people group along with the Gentiles. So that Israel must now, um, I think, include the Gentiles, especially since this is a... Um, a passage where he's already the context has already been established that the wild olive tree has been grafted into thus the term israel gets broadened 
it doesn't get replaced. So rather than saying that the Gentiles have replaced Israel or overtaken Israel, it's better to say that the Gentiles have become partakers rather than overtakers. That's the way I like to um, describe it. Partakers in the plans and the purposes and the promises of the, and the blessings of God. And thus, uh, the church gets to utilize and inherit the label Israel along with that family, clan, association without having to undergo any man-made conversion ritual to change your status from Gentile to Jew, which was the big hubbub in the first century, the big um, uh, hurdle or um, hindrance or barrier to understanding and allowing the gospel to go forward from Israel to the rest of the nations. That that man-made conversion policy, the the works of the law, the, the whole covenantal nomism program. Go back and read uh, the book of Galatians very carefully with that in mind, and um, uh, things will make a lot more sense. So, Let's keep reading through this uh, commentary. This is Karm still speaking. Some replacement theologians would teach that any mention of Israel after Acts chapter 2, that is Pentecost, would be referring to the Christian church. But, as they say, the above scripture cannot be used to support that idea, right? If we go back and read the, the Romans passage carefully and give it its full weight, how could Paul be talking about um, Israel being replaced by the church if, in that passage, he talks about Israel being restored to glory after God removes her blindness and uh, cleanses her of her filth? Why would he bring her back into the picture if she's been replaced? I mean, if she's if she's out, then she's out, right? So, um, of course, I know the dispensations are going to step in and go, ah, but it's the era of the of Israel, and then we move chronologically to the era of the church, and then once the church is moved out of the way, then we move back to the era of, or dispensational is the terms they use, back to the dispensation of Israel and things like that, so in that way they can um, have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that a little later, but for now I don't want to mention that. All right, Karm continues. In fact, speaking of the passage we just read, it plainly contradicts it, right? Meaning it contradicts the idea that God has um, given up on Israel. If he gave up on Israel, then why is he interested in removing her blindness, cleansing her of her filth, removing, un, um, how did uh, Paul put it, um, uh, removing ungodliness from Jacob? Why would God be concerned about that if he's done with Israel, right? If she's out, then... Um, you know, what, what? why bring her back into the picture? Um, and Karm answers her own question, or the questions I'm asking. Obviously, God is not done with Israel. And of course, again, this explanation could either be um, a result of a, disp of a dispensational outlook. I'm not certain if Karm is dispensational or not. I need to go back and look that up. Um, I'll do that for you this week. It's my own homework assignment, and we'll talk about it next week. Um, or if Karm takes the uh, approach that I take, uh, where dispensationalism has its own flaws. Uh, and I use a, a, a theology known as... Um, uh, in uh, what in grafting theology, um, uh, uh, fulfillment, not fulfillment theology. That one also has 
too much resemblance to replacement theology, fulfillment theology. Um, uh, all of tree theology is what I believe I want to. I think that's the term I've I've stated in the past that I hold to, and I'll explain what that is as we go along. So don't worry if you don't know what it means right now. But Karm continues. The text that we just read about in Romans tells us that God has hardened Israel, but it also tells us that. Um, this disheartening hardness is temporary. And we saw that, that a partial blindness, so the blindness is partial, and it's temporary. So to me, at face value, then it can't be that replacement theology is, is accurate in all of its forms if the par- hardening is partial and if it's temporary. And they conclude by saying, this is Karm. Replacement theology is also known as supersessionism, which means that the Christian church has superseded Israel in God's plan. So you'll hear it uh, using both labels. Um, the uh, quotes from uh, Karm uh, that I um, used, if I click on my footnoting, you'll see that I lifted those from um, their website at karm.org under their questions of uh, the um Topic replacement theology, and so if you're interested, you can go uh, check out that. You can click, I think, nope, the link itself on on my um, in my uh, uh, commentary here is not hot linked, so you can't click it right over to their site. But uh, uh, go check it out. I, I think their site's fairly well put together. So, all right, let's um, let's see what I'm doing by way of time. Yeah, we've got some more time. Let's go. Um, let's continue on, and we'll read. Um, one more paragraph, and then um, we'll we'll uh, call it quits. Uh, I'm not going. I'm instead of going like a full 30 minutes for segment one. Um, what I've been doing is like 20 minutes for each segment, and that leaves me 20 minutes to do the um, liturgy because it's a little more involved these days. So uh, let's go like that. Here's my own commentary. Here's what I have to say. In my personal experience, and I'm a Messianic Jew, so that's the perspective I'm working from, and in my personal experience of interacting with honest folks, many Christians, I say, are understandably uncomfortable with the implications that are described by the basic tenets of replacement theology. So if you ask them, hey, has the church replaced Israel? Many, many Christians, particularly in Baptist circles, are uncomfortable using that term replacement, right? Replace Israel. They like to say, well, we've been brought alongside of Israel or um, we have joined Israel. or they'll use the, So they'll use a different term to describe what they believe is the proper way to experience what they are going through as a Christian in, re- in regards to Israel. Like I said, I don't know if that's all just a result of you know, trying to be sensitive to Israel's place. Um, but either way, as we're going to find out, it still practically works itself out in the form of many Christians being, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're a little hesitant to embrace Judaism or any any brand of, of Christianity that has semblance to uh, Hebraic roots and things like that. So, um, but anyway, most people that I talk to, they just don't talk that way as Christians. So, what they do, I say, is they wish instead to uphold the idea that while the church may not have actually replaced Israel, right? Notice they don't like that word replaced, they don't like the R word. Christianity is, in their minds, nevertheless, simply incompatible with any other religion, including. Judaism. So there's this idea that Christianity is the one true religion that has taken center stage and that if I'm going to walk out my faith, there's really no other option. I can't be a Christian Buddhist 
or I can't be a Christian Jew, or I can't be a Christian, um, uh, you know, fill in the blank and add your, your, your other religion alongside of that. They feel that, well, um, Christianity has too many exclusives. It has too many um, uh, truths that are foundational that I'm not willing to compromise on, right, what we call convictions. And so, in one sense, that's a good thing. You know, I'm not knocking that. Um, and there's some truth to all of that. But uh, w- Along with Judaism, I'm sorry, along with Christianity, in my understanding, Judaism is a very unique religion like Christianity. It's not like your average Islam or, you know, um, Buddhism or something like that. Uh, there's something unique about Christianity, yes, but there's also something unique about Judaism, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit that in the study tonight. Well, not tonight, but as we go along. I say in my commentary, speaking of Judaism, Judaism, they might suggest, uh, you know, referring to these same Christians that I'm having a, this imaginary conversation with, which in reality has not been so imaginary over the years, but um, these same Christians might suggest that for Judaism, it's fine for unbelieving Jews to practice that religion, but once a person comes to faith in Jesus, perhaps Judaism and its old rituals need to be left behind. Now remember, these are the same Christians in my commentary, that are uncomfortable with the R word in replacement theology, but they nevertheless are also uncomfortable with embracing any form of Judaism as a Christian. So, messing up Judaism perhaps is not appealing to them, and maybe the Hebraic lifestyle itself is also um, a little confusing to them. So, that's that's kind of where we're um, leaning in this part of the discussion here. I go on to say, besides leaning heavily upon the Apostle Paul's teaching, this is my own comment, uh, my own comments, such Christians that I'm describing might also naturally opine this position from a popular understanding of one of Yeshua's teachings found in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so the story that we're going to read, or the parable, uh, or the, the statement that Yeshua uh, presents is found in in multiple books, but we're only going to uh, focus on the Matthew version um, for this particular study. So what I mean is that if you ask your average garden variety uh, Christian Gentile Christian today, where would you get the idea that Christianity and Judaism are not really compatible with one another? Where would you where would you why do you feel that Judaism is not really a viable option when it comes to lifestyle? Why do you why do you interpret the Bible in such a way that you believe the law of Moses has kind of been uh, passed on. It's had, it had its time. It's kind of used up its usefulness. Um, you know, it's kind of run its course, so to say. It's been now replaced. Where would you get that feeling? And most people are going to kind of thumb through one of Paul's writings, uh, Galatians or parts of Romans. You know, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Um, or maybe First Corinthians, um, where he talks about it's you know not of the letter but of the spirit. We're, we're ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter but of the spirit. For the old, you know, the old kill. Um, the letter kills, um, you know, things like that. Um, or maybe the book of Hebrews where it talks about in chapter 8, uh, whatever's old is, is ready to pass away and ready to vanish altogether. Um, things like that. Um, that might be where they get it. But we're going to turn instead to um, one of uh, one of the uh, sayings by Yeshua and see how that this can be pulled out from the commentaries. You might not catch it from Yeshua's statement because it's so cryptic. It, it, it's hard to interpret. Here's what I say in my commentary real quick. This is where 
I want to park my commentary for the most part today. Um, talking about this um, uh, saying from Yeshua. And um, let's see, do I want to get into it tonight? Nope, I don't want to read it tonight. We'll we'll wait till next week. And so what we'll do next week is we'll start looking at the actual namesake of my commentary, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. If you'd like to skip ahead and read either the passage on your own, I highly recommend that this week. Or you can go to my website at tatetor.com and click on the Matthew link and read the commentary there for yourself. And go go ahead of me. I'm fine with either one of those. But either way, that'll do it for our look at for our study on Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week from myself, Ariel uh, Hanavi, Tor teacher at the Harvest Congregation, Kayla Dudva in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at grafted.com. Or, if you can't visit us or you're just uncomfortable getting out and about just yet, find our um, YouTube videos, which are also available right from our website. Click on the link that you see on your screen right now on the thumbnail there. These live studies are are brought to you week after week, and they are a representative of my own personal Torah teaching ministry. Um, Find me online at tatetor.com. That's www.tetzetorah.com. Go to my website and click around the homepage through any one of those links that you can see on your screen right now, and uh, you'll find all the study materials that you need. These are not the full exhaustive list of the studies I put together. There's so much more. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but kind of a representation of some of the major sections and major studies. So um, I hope the ministry is a blessing to you as you click your way around through that. Um, Speaking of ministries, find me on the YouTube um, scene at YouTube dot com forward slash c forward slash tatetor ministries and uh, i've got a youtube channel there um uploading content daily in fact often it's multiple times a day so um what you want to make sure you do is subscribe um hit the bell for notifications uh give me a thumbs up if you like the content leave me comments and questions and corrections on the content that i'm posting and then click the share arrow to share the content with other people in your social media circles Live Internet Studies, here's some brief um, details for you. This is episode number 170 for February the 12th, 2022 USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. There are two segments for our hour-long study. Segment 1 normally is 30 minutes, an examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? We're in part 2 this week. Segment 2, which we're about to turn to, Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in Paper 3, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? We're in Part 102 tonight. And we didn't watch the video last night, or last week, so maybe we'll watch it this week. Uh, from my short question, short answer live series, What does the Bible mean when it refers to a remnant? Right in line with the uh, Matthew study uh, information there. The live studies are available via Skype. If you go to my website at datesatour.com and click the blue banner there that you see on my screen, if I am conducting the live study at the time, like I'm doing right now, then if you click that link, it'll launch Skype in your browser and you'll be able to join us for the live study. So I hope you're able to um, do that one of these weeks. Let me just 
see it should have been that yeah i like that i like the the size of the uh, screen there um so um uh, maybe one of these weeks you can join us um but if not at least if you hit my website if you go to um, tatesitor.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom in that black section where you can see some hebrew writing and pray about um partnering with me in this ministry helping me out during this difficult time that i'm in if the lord is laying it on your heart to bless me financially this is the way you can do it click the little yellow donate button and you can donate to my ministry securely uh, using um, PayPal and any number of uh, funding resources. But as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's just jump back into the study where we left off. Let me scroll down to the section. Remember, we're in paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? And we just now broke ground with the um, who or what is the Holy Spirit, the filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and social Trinitarian thoughts. So let's click on that and jump into the study. Let's see, where did I leave off? We just read some information about Eastern Orthodoxy from, um, uh, I think it was Wikipedia. And, or did we? Did we read that? Give me a second here. Yes, we did read that part right there. So we stopped with that quote, which I believe was from Wikipedia. Yeah. So now we're ready to pick up my own commentary. All right. So we're having these discussions on the nature of the Holy Spirit, but in order to gain a better a appreciation for the way different um, denominations, uh, such as uh, you know Eastern Orthodoxy and different Christian groups who call themselves Christian, like the Latter-day Saints, the way they appreciate the role of the Holy Spirit, right, in relation to this Trinity study, since we're on, a, we're on the final paper, which is the Holy Spirit, we have to back up a little bit and talk some more about social Trinitarianism and look at the way Eastern Orthodoxy interprets this um, giving of the Holy Spirit. And this is where we're going to start getting into this debate known as the Filioque debate. So let's uh, pick up my commentary here. I say, related to the quote, how and why, end quote, of the specific Holy Spirit beliefs of Eastern Orthodoxy is the divisive topic referred to as filioque. Now, um, the Latin term filioque, we're going to find out here in a moment what filioque refers to, um, but many, many, what I, in my experience, many Protestants or evangelical Christians or maybe even Catholic Christians are really unfamiliar with what we're going to be talking about. They're not really concerned about this particular debate. Uh, it's more um, something that's discussed in maybe Greek Orthodox or uh, Eastern Orthodox circles, since it's so uh, relative to their uh, form of belief about the Holy Spirit. But here's what I have to say. Indeed, a Holy Spirit commentary would not be complete without including some references to this well-documented, religiously important historical occurrence. So it is important, especially those history buffs out there, it's vitally important. It's a very important part of church history. In fact, you may not have known what I'm about to say next. Let me just read it for you instead of getting ahead of myself. As is well known by historians in the, the in theological circles, the Church of the West and the Church of the East actually split from one another. It's called the Great Schism of 1054 
over matters related to differences in interpretation over some key passages in the New Testament. Scroll up there. Uh, some key passages in the New Testament, and particularly a single verse in the book of John as it pertains to a line in the later Western creedal confession with its uh, quote-unquote extraneous details surrounding, quote, the procession of the Spirit, better known by its Latin term, filioque, which I say, and I'm going to supply just a short definition here for you, the term filioque means, quote, and from the Son. That's the Latin breakdown of filioque, and from the Son. So, um, I know that was kind of a mouthful there. What I'm trying to um, kind of alert us to the fact or just introduce us to the idea is that this was not simply a disagreement over the color of the carpet where one church denomination split, formed their own denomination, went down the street, started a new church, yet they're still Baptists or something like that, right? We have, you know, First Baptist Church of on the corner of um main street that you know they have a disagreement over some some minor theology or or church policy and they split and then go down the street and, f and form the second baptist church of main street or something like that but the but the but the breakaway is that the other church still is a kind of a um within the same denomination of course i'm being a bit um, humorous in my description but you guys get catch the uh, the, uh, the idea here this split in church history isn't that small. It split the church, and they still split today, east and west. I mean, it was a big split. So it was a big deal to them. Today, we might think, well, what's the big deal? In fact, when we read down through um, some of the reasons why they split, it wasn't all just because of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, there were some other um, uh, implications behind who has the right to um, make the creeds who has the right to who has the authority to govern the church right so we're talking about matters of authority who's in charge that type of thing so um but these are issues that are very real to the two church groups that split and they felt that they were both in the right you know each side felt that they were in the right and it seems like to this day they're still split i mean the the the, the split hasn't come back together they haven't healed and said okay let's let's just resolve our differences and form one large body of messiah again they're still separate uh, east versus west um greek orthodox versus roman catholicism or something like that that's the split basically between the eastern orthodoxy on one end and roman catholicism on the other side you know um and that's that's how it is it's still that way today so i say in my commentary john 15 26 in the esv is the passage that we're going to um uh, park out on for a second to show uh what the split um what what maybe began to um bring about the split or uh, uh, uh facilitate the split um so let's read these uh verses um let's see how much of this do i want to join the john plus the greek i might read the greek i might not um john says in the english but when the helper comes sorry it's john writing recording Yeshua's words. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, so these are Messiah's words, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, end quote. So this is, um, this is ESV, as I mentioned. And so notice the verb. The Holy Spirit is said by Yeshua to 
be sent from him, from Yeshua, but proceeding from the Father. So there's the careful wording that Yeshua is supplying. The Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, he is going to be sent by me, but he's going to proceed from the Father. So, so part of the discussion that we're having here in, in this study, um, Shema, um, exploring the Shema uh, discussions on the issues of Trinity, is the idea of that this triadic, the triadic nature of this passage, where we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all being discussed in one verse or one passage. And with reference to the idea that we serve one God who, who nevertheless um, reveals himself to us as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yet it's all one God, right? As Dr. James White is fond of saying, one what, three who's. Well, if the role of the Holy Spirit is vitally linked to um, God the Father, like Eastern Orthodoxy talks about today, then why would Yeshua even have to say that he's going to send the Holy Spirit? Well, isn't the Holy Spirit um, the, the, the what we could almost say the property, using air quotes on my fingers, of the Father? Why would Yeshua have to say that that he's going to send the Holy Spirit at all? Um you know why even bring up the what we might call the slight ambiguity or um, equivocation, uh, the confusion uh, in the matter. I mean, the church. I'm not saying that it's God's fault and Yeshua's fault that the church split eats east to west. Uh, you know, God forbid. That's it's not God's fault. Man makes his own stupid and silly decisions, right? He doesn't need God's help to be stupid. Um, but the point is that the split uses this verse to um, kind of uh, uh, hash out their differences from one another. Um, let me see if there's anything in the Greek there that's particularly uh, worth looking at. I do underline the word proceeds, uh, ekporuotai, down there in the highlighted section you can see. Hatan elthe ha parakletas han ego. Pempso human para tu patrasto Himera, um, I'm sorry, pneuma tes aletheas, hop para tu patras, ek poruatai, ekinas, marturese, periemu. Okay, nothing else really that kind of jumps out at me that I need to highlight, but just that Greek word, ek poruatai, which means proceeds from or goes from the first two letters, ek, out from or going from, having its origin from. So, uh, let's keep uh, going through my commentary. These are my own thoughts. I say, personally, this is me, personally, I personally think that the verse in question that we just read, I think it's self-explanatory. In other words, it doesn't require the need of fancy exegesis to understand its central meaning. And so, I supply what I think is the basic central meaning, which is why it's in bold in my commentary. God the Father is the one who causes the Holy Spirit to, quote, issue from its place of origin vis-a-vis -vis believers being influenced by the Spirit's presence, as in regards to, that's what vis-a-vis -vis means, as in regards to, or, or in respects to, um, believers being influenced by the Spirit's presence, right? God is the source, he's the cause of the Holy Spirit issuing forth, but I say not necessarily in relation to some sort of creation aspect of the Spirit. So understand my careful distinction. God doesn't create the Holy Spirit and then send him to the believers. So the Father is the source, but he is not the, um, he does not 
form the um, the creation. So, um, you know, Unitarians might discuss uh, the fact that Jesus is the chief of God's creation. He's the primary um, head of creation because he's the first creature brought into existence by God through whom God then creates the rest of the world. But Jesus himself is still this creature, this this man, this, this being who is endowed with um, God-like powers or and endowed with godhood, uh, you know, deified um, to become the God-Man. Um, in other words, he's not one with God in in essence, in 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 his true nature. The same thing with the Holy Spirit. In Unitarian discussions, the Unitarian is often relegated to either a force of God, like a power that can shoot from his fingertips, like, like, pardon this this um, reference, crude, but it's the only one that comes to mind. In Star Wars: The Return of the Jedi, the Emperor, you know, the the really big bad guy, the big boss baddie, he shoots. Um, I think they're purple lightning uh, bolts from his fingertips to attack Luke Skywalker when he's fighting Darth Vader in near the final scene. I'm star- sorry if I spoiled the movie for you if you haven't seen it, right? It's, I mean, the movie came out in 1983. If you haven't seen it yet, what you've been waiting for? So, in the Unitarian model, the Holy Spirit's almost like the, 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 um, the um, lightning shooting from the fingertips of the Emperor. The Holy Spirit is a force to be reckoned with. It's a power from God. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are fond of describing the Holy Spirit as as this impersonal force um, that God can send forth to do His bidding. And the picture that pops into my mind is uh, the Emperor shooting, uh, you know, those lightning bolts from his fingertips. Um, the Unitarian model is a little more. Um, reverent and not giving God just his impersonal force uh, role or um, uh, description. They like to say that the Holy Spirit is the is the spirit of God himself, much like Ariel is a living spirit. He's a human being, but I've got the spirit in me. And so it's not an impersonal force. I don't speak of my spirit as an impersonal force, like my mind or my, my soul. It's not impersonal. It's very much personal. It's a part of who I am. And so the spirit of God is, is the personality of God. It's the thought processes of God. It's the it's the very soul of God, the the the, the personality of God, the uh you know God's life force if you want to call it that. Um but in regards to this issue of where's the origin of the Holy Spirit in the Unitarian model, which the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to fall under that uh, category because they're non-Trinitarian, we still have to have this discussion on the origin of the Holy Spirit. Does God create the Holy Spirit? Is it something that issues forth from his fingertips, right? In the, in, the, in the emperor example, I think its its origin is with the emperor's evil power over the dark side of the force itself. So the, that the, 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 the lightning bolts are created by his own dark power, his own um, um, evil desire to hurt Luke Skywalker in that moment. Um, but is it the same with God? Is he is he causing the Holy Spirit to issue forth? When when we talk about this Greek word that we're going to look at it here in a second, is it that th- that the that the Spirit goes forth um, as what we say passively? He has no choice in the matter, right? Is he sent forth in that respect? So these are some of the discussions that take place, um, and during this church history split that we're having this discussion about. Um, the 
Eastern Church felt that it was not quite accurate to give um, Jesus the same ability to send, to command the Holy Spirit to go forth, or even to to create its point of origin. Uh, that's too much power to give to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, um, because it it disrupted the 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 understanding that God was the source of all things, including the source of the Messiah's ministry. You understand what I'm saying there? So we'll we'll we'll, hash, we'll flash this flesh this out a little bit more as we go along. I know some of it might be a bit confusing to you, but follow along with me. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father. In my commentary, I highlight the fact that this Greek ek peruotai, um Strong's Concordance to root word number 1607 ek peruotai, ek Uh So ek peruotai is how the verse is the 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 case that we find the Greek in in the verse, but the root word is ek peruomai, and um, this word means to make or to go forth, um, to go forth, i.e., to proceed. Right. So generically speaking, the verb can simply be describing the action of moving from point A to point B. It doesn't have to um, be describing the point of 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 um, creation. So, for instance, if you were to stand next to a speaker and sound was coming out of the speaker, everyone would realize that the that the sound is moving from the speaker to your ears or to the surrounding area. But we could have a debate. Is the sound being, is the origin of the sound the speakers? Or is the origin and the source of the music itself, like the radio that the speaker's connected to? Or, you know, your podcast, your, uh, your, um, your, uh, um, your iPod or whatever, um, your MP3 player. Where's the source of the signal that the speaker is receiving? So we could have a philosophical debate about that. Some people are going to say, well, yes, the speaker is producing the sound because of the magnets and the drivers and the coil and the, the cone and the material of the speaker itself. The source of the sound is the speaker. Someone else is going to come along and say, no, 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 the source is not the speaker. The source is actually whatever device is sending the sound to the speaker via the wire that's plugged in the back of the speaker. So you see how it can get philosophical. That's kind of what's going on with the filioque debate when when we're having this discussion on where did the spirit orig- originate from? Did God cause the spirit to go forth or did Yeshua cause the spirit to go forth? And if Yeshua caused the spirit... Is it because Yeshua is very God himself, right? One with God? Or does God himself retain that unique um, origin aspect, right? He's the source. He's the he's arche the in the Greek. Um, is he the sole arche, the, the mono arche, right? The monarchy. Um, is he that sole source of all things and thus Yeshua cannot wear that title okay that's the kind of the discussion that is kind of being stirred up with this whole filioque um, debate so I want you to understand it's a little more than just a, a fighting over um, splitting of words or nuancing of words or uh, what do we say he's he's um, playing with words you know it wasn't it, they didn't just split because they didn't like the terminology so um, let me go back and read the uh, uh, the uh, bolded part because I'm breaking it out of my context. My definition of um, of understanding the passage is is this way: God the Father is the one who causes the Holy Spirit to issue from its place of origin or His place. If you want, to, if you're uncomfortable with my pronoun, there it 
in reference to the Holy Spirit. I'm simply talking about the um, the topic of the Holy Spirit. I don't really mean to be irreverent by saying it there. But issue from his place of origin, or its place of origin, uh, vis-a-vis believers being influenced by the Spirit's presence, but not necessarily, I say, this is my own opinion, not necessarily in relation to some sort of, quote, creation aspect of the Spirit, end quote, by the Father himself, while at the same time, I add, Yeshua the Son, so we're picking up my commentary right here, while I say Yeshua the Son authoritatively and of his own volition freely, quote-unquote, dispatches, as it were, that which proceeds from the Father, that is, the Son, quote-unquote, sends the Holy Spirit to believers. And then we have this uh, second Greek word, that I brought into my uh, commentary. Sorry, let me scroll up there. Uh, this Greek word, um, pempso, which is uh, related to Strunk's in accordance to the root word 3992. Um, pemp, what is that? Uh, pempo, which is, uh, pempo means to send or transmit or permit to go or to put forth. So pempso is the case uh uh, version, meaning the, the, the form of the word that's found, the inflection of the word that shows up in the actual Greek text, pempso, but it's related to the root word, um, pempo, uh, which if you pull up your Strong's Concordance, it's not going to show pempso, it's going to show pempo, um, send, transmit, permit to go, or to put forth. So this is my understanding of the passage in question, and um, we're not going to um, exhaust our discussion tonight uh, will actually probably draw our study to a close on this uh, uh, paragraph right here. But this is what's at stake in the discussion of the filioque debate. Um, if the you know the Greek Orthodox are going to say, the Eastern Orthodox are going to say, if you now Roman Catholic Roman Catholic leaders, right? But at the time, I don't know if they were calling themselves Roman Catholic. But if you are going to um, say that. The Son can send the Spirit in in origin fashion. Then, are you saying that Yeshua is God? Well, yes, we are, but no, we're not saying that He's the sole source of everything. We're going to find out, as in my quote from um, my response from uh, Roman Catholicism, that they they don't really want to convey the the idea that Yeshua is the source, the archate of all things. They're still going to give that title back to God the Father, so that um, when Yeshua talks about that I am sent from the Father, that I go under the authority of my Father's command, that I only live to do the will of my Father, etc., etc., we have this sub, kind of the subordinate role that the Son plays in regards to the Father. All of that makes sense within the um, the Trinity model that we're discussing here, right? The, uh, the uh, um, uh, social Trinitarianism and things like that. All of that makes sense if we understand that Yeshua has doesn't have doesn't have the right to say that I am the source of everything, otherwise, if Yeshua is the true source, right, the source of everything in this discussion, then why is he sending himself? Why doesn't he say, um, you know, I only live to will to do it. I only live to do the will of myself, right? <laughs> um, or you know, it's not my will, but my will be done, right? <laughs> So the whole subordination um, 
conversations that Yeshua has where he's referring everything back to the Father wouldn't make much sense if Yeshua was really the source of everything. If if really it's just like the oneness Pentecostals teach that Jesus is the one true God and that the name of the one true God is Jesus and that basically the modalistic perspective that they hold to where it's one God wearing three different disguises, his one true name is Jesus. In that aspect, then yeah, Jesus is the source of everything. And there is no really true Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're just those are just descriptions of of um hats that this one God named Jesus swaps out and wears. Um and so in that sense, um to them sending the Holy Spirit's no problem because you're really just sending yourself. And so it gets really kind of philosophically um confusing at times. But I hope that this part of my discussion isn't too confusing. I, I'll kind of tip my hand to you right up front before I leave. I'm of the persuasion that if we just let the Bible speak for itself in its plain language, that there's enough information here for us to walk away with an understanding that's not confusing. And it's basically the black bolded part that I read earlier. Yeshua can speak of sending the Holy Spirit because the Father gives him that authority without trying to define the source and origin of the creation of the Holy Spirit, you know, proceeding from the Father. Um, Yeshua can say that, yes, I send the Holy Spirit, but the procession is from the Father. Meaning, at the same time, Yeshua is speaking of his own authority granted from the Father, right? I send the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, he defers back to the Father as that source, being the one who from whom the Holy Spirit proceeds. I think the verse is self-explanatory, but why couldn't the church leaders of the East and the West see it that way? We'll begin to unpack that next week and as we go along. But that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's begin to wind down my study and turn to the liturgy part of this study. Um, and we still have to leave room for the um, the video, right? Um, Jeremiah 31, we're reading basically verses 31 through 34 in this kind of word study. And we're now ready for verse 33. And uh, so we read verse 31 and 32 last week. Go back and listen to those separate studies. Now let's look at verse 33. Here's what Jeremiah says. For this is the covenant, right? He's talking about this new covenant, this Brit Hadashah that he is going to make, God is going to make, not Jeremiah. God is going to make this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But now God says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, right? The, the, the term Judah gets dropped, house of Judah, because in God's mind, the two houses who were split are brought back together under the single term Israel. Go back and read it. Ezekiel's two sticks being joined together once again. That's the, the context. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, right? It's a future um, prophecy, declares the Lord. What's he going to do? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we're going to focus tonight on this word law. I will put my law within them. What law is he putting within them? From Jeremiah's perspective, it has to be something that Israel could understand because Jeremiah was using the Hebrew language or maybe a form of Paleo-Hebrew or, or some form of um, 
of um, Aramaic or something like that, but it's likely it was Hebrew, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And if he said law, what Hebrew word was he utilizing, what word would they have understood? Were they to understand, like we kind of inter- uh, entertained last week, that this new covenant is a New Testament? Is that what they were thinking? Hey, God says to Israel, you can kind of hear my voice change in kind of humor and in jest, in irony, um, in facetiousness, hey Israel, I'm gonna, uh, I'm going to bring about a New Testament someday, and this New Testament that I'm going to make, it's gonna be a brand new book. Gonna be, you guys, you guys, can you guys get ready for that? Right, it's it's still future, but someday I'm gonna bring this New Testament, and so what it's gonna allow you to do is to swap out your books. Right, we talked about this in replacement theology, my um, my Matthew study, Judaism v Christianity study. I'm gonna bring, a, I'm gonna issue a New Testament. <laughs> Which means you can throw out the Old Testament and embrace the new one. Is that what God's promising in this passage? Well, I don't think so. For this is the covenant, right? So don't think New Testament as a, as a body of writings that, that Jeremiah is promising. God's promising to bring a new covenant, right? That I will make with the house of Israel. But this law that gets put within them, what is that? So let's jump over to the Hebrew and, and begin to break this down too. Uh, the Hebrew says, I can see on my screen, it says, Ki zot habrit, right? This is the covenant. Ki zot habrit, asher echrot et beit Yisrael, that I'm going to make with the house of Israel, et beit Yisrael, when achay hayamim hahim, in the, the last days, or the, the days which come later, meaning it's a future prophecy. Achay tayamim hahim, says the Lord, the umadonai. What's going to happen? He's going to put natati et torati. He's going to put his law, his Torah, torati bekirbam libam ektavena. He's going to put this law in them, right? He's going to write it on their hearts, is literally what it says. Um, write it within them, putting it on their hearts, libam, and uh, in the hearts of them, within them. And also, Vahaiti lechem le'elohim, and he will be um, a God to them, lechem le'elohim, vehema yiyu li la'am. And I will be a God to them, and they will be to me a, an am, a people group. But germane to our study for the um, uh, liturgy is this word that I've highlighted uh, on the screen, Torati, from which the root word is, you heard it, Torah. I will put my Torah on the inside of them. So let's click on that Strong's number and find out some of the definitions. Strong's number 8451 is the Hebrew word Torah, and Strong's defines it as direction or instruction or law. It's a feminine noun, and um, the working definition that you're going to find in most Bibles is something like law or instruction or direction. Um, God's teachings is a great way to define the word law there or Torah. Oftentimes in church circles, the word Torah is wielded as if it's this kind of this unyielding, stodgy, stiff, um, uh, a wooden, um, undesirable set of legal requirements, do's and don'ts, right? Black and white, that there's no you know, um, no leeway, uh, you know, it's like, uh, um, 
you know, the cop pulls you over and you know you're speeding and you just know he's not going to give you a warning, right, or anything like that. He's not going to, he's, he's, he's definitely going to give you a ticket. You feel this, this fear come over you. And yet you might be surprised that he might actually just give you a warning. But not so with the Torah, right? You feel this is just this, it's, it's this strict um, rule book, this, you know, God standing up there waiting to, to zap you if you uh, break any single infraction or anything like that. That's, we get this picture picture of law, but the better picture is it's not that. It's actually this loving father who is instructing us and giving us his love, loving, gracious instructions and commandments um, for our own well-being, to safeguard our, our well-being, right? So it, it comes from this um, archery term, yara, which means to shoot an arrow or to send an arrow down the path towards the, uh, the, the, the target, which is the goal, the bullseye down at the other end of the field where you're shooting your arrow. So yara is an archery term. But um, uh, the, the word Torah should give rise to um, you know, custom instruction, instructions, law, laws, rulings, teachings. But just think of it as God's instructions to humans, to his people, for their well-being, for their own good, for their safety, for their protection, for their blessing and enjoyment of covenant um, membership and things like that. So, remember, this passage that we're looking at in Jeremiah 31 has been lifted and carried over into the book of Hebrews. Let's pick up the reading in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 8, but we've already read verse 8 and verse 9. Let's pick up verse 10. Here's what the writer to the book of Hebrews says. The quote from Jeremiah reads this way, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, you should have noticed some differences between the two passages. Let me kind of toggle between the two so you can see some of these differences. I might, in post-production, put these both on the same screen. In the Jeremiah passage, God says, I will put my law singular within them. But in the Hebrews passage, the writer translates it, or at least the English translates it as, I will put my laws. And we're going to find out from the Greek that there is a difference between the Hebrew singular Torah and the Greek word namas that we're going to see is actually in the plural. So yes, that's warranted. I will put my laws. Also, in the Hebrews rendering, it says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Whereas in Jeremiah, it simply says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. It doesn't th say anything about putting it in their mind. So that's an interesting change. And then um, the last part, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, is basically the same in both passages. All right, so let's break down. Let's look at the Greek real quick um, and then begin to uh, break this down. In the Greek of, um, of the Hebrews passage, uh, here's what we have. The Greek says, Hati aute, he diatheke hein, diathesomai to oiko Yisrael, meta tas himeras, ekinas lege kurias, continuing, didus namas mu es ten dianoian auton, kai epi karadias auton, epi grapso autus, kai esomai autois, Ace theon kai autoi esantai moi ace laon. That's the Greek rendering. Now, the phrase that we want to highlight, 
the one we want to focus on is where God says, um, let me highlight it here. In the English, it's, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is the subject of our short little Bible study, our short little word study. What is this law or these laws that I'm going to put into their minds and write them on their hearts? Um, all right, let's look at the Greek, see if we can break it down. Um, it is right and let's see, it's going to be this section right there. Um, uh, the Greek says, Didus namus mu eis tain diadnoion auton, kai epikardias auton, epigrapso autus. And then he continues there with, and I will um, uh, be their God, and uh, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Or I will establish them, or I will uh, set them as my God. So uh, the, the, the word we're really focused on is just the Greek word right there, namus, namus, which the root word we're going to find out is namas. So if I click on it, um, the... Um, the Strong's definition shows up, uh, Strong's number 3551, namas, uh, is this particular word you can see on my screen. Namas, Strong's number, um, that which is assigned, hinge usage, law. Namas is a masculine noun, right? First it was a feminine noun in the Hebrew, but in the Greek it turns into masculine. And the definition that's going to show up in your Strong's concordance, that which is assigned usage, law, or custom uh, in the New Testament of law in general, plural of divine laws, of a force or influence impelling to action of the Mosaic law, uh, maton of the books which contain the law, the uh, of met, met, meton, uh, metonym, when it says meton, of the books of the meaning, a, a stand-in word, a word that's referring to something else, almost like a synonym, or uh, um, almost like a circumlocution, a metonym, of the books which contain the law, right? So Torah is not just um, law, but it's a reference to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament scriptures in general. So those are some of the words that you're going to encounter when you're looking up this word from the Greek, namas, uh, 3551, law. Um, as I mentioned, most often the reference is to the Old Testament law. And so when Jeremiah says that I'm going to uh, put a lo this law within their minds and their hearts, yes, God is envisioning, I believe, the Mosaic legislation that he's bringing into the picture. But there is an aspect of this new, new, new covenant that is quite radically different than the way it was presented in the Old Testament. And the answer is given to us right there in the passage. God doesn't say that I'm going to write these laws on tablets of stone, in this new covenant, by comparison, he's going to write these laws on tablets of flesh. The, 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 the location of the laws is different. In the, in the Mosaic legislation, the laws were on stone, and thus that represented the people's um, interaction with the law was kind of external. But now in this new covenant, God is promising the people that that which was external is going to move to the internal. And it's going to be inside your heart and in your mind, the, the place where you make your decisions, your thought processes, and you know your, the way you govern your lifestyle. 
all of that's going to be um, uh, take place on the inside. Of course, the Holy Spirit's going to be activating all of that on the inside for us. You can go back and read Ezekiel's um, counter uh, passage that we'll probably turn to in the future. We've read it in the past, but prophecy that talks about um, the heart transplant that God's going to give corporate Israel one day. But germane to our study tonight is that it is law and the context is that it's Torah. It doesn't say that it's this new set of scriptures that God's going to write on the hearts of Israel and into their minds, putting it into their minds. It's rather this same Mosaic law which are God's good laws but now we know from a New Testament perspective or New Covenant perspective that this must include the apostolic writings because that's also part of God's law. That's part of, God, part of God's teaching. So the takeaway for tonight is that um, this is God's teaching, which doesn't just include Torah, but it does include Torah, but it's not exclusive. It now brings in the apostolic scriptures into that, even though it doesn't say that in the Jeremiah passage. We know it must be true because of what we read in the apostolic scriptures. Let's real quick just look at the Septuagint, um, and then I'll, I won't wax long on this part. Um, we'll read some more about uh, uh, uh this, as we keep going, um, I'll start with this part next week, right, where a, a commentary from Tim Hager, where he talks about the laws being written on the heart. I'll start with that next week, but let me close by reading the Septuagint um, of this verse, verse 33 of out of Jeremiah. Remember, Septuagint is written in Greek, so it should sound very similar to the um, um, Hebrews passage we just read. Um, I'll read the wooden translation here in this uh, tool, BibleHub.com, starting right there uh, near the upper right part of the screen it says um, for this is my covenant which i shall ordain with the house of israel after those days says the lord i will put my laws into their minds and upon their hearts i will write them and i will be to them for god and they will be to me for a people so that's the wooden word for word English representation in the red that you can see on your screen right now. But if I go back and read the Greek, starting where you can see on the screen, it says, Hati aute he diatheke mu hain diathesomai to oiko Israel meta, sorry, scroll up, um, meta tas himeras ekinas face kuria. So there's a difference there, says the Lord, as opposed to, um, uh, I can't remember exactly what it said earlier. Um, uh, a different Greek uh, verb there, but says the Lord, not too different in style though, it's just, um, or not too different in meaning, just difference in style, but face kurias, doso, there's another difference there, I will put doso namas mu, the laws of me, astain into dianoion auton, into their mind, or the minds of them, literally in the Greek, kai epi, and upon karadias auton, into the hearts of them, literally, into their hearts, Grapso, there's a difference there in the slight wording, the, the way the Greek is. Grapso uh, autus, and I will write them kai and esomai um, autois. I will be to them esomai autois theon for a god kai autoi esantai moi es laon. I will be a god to them, and they will be a people for me. They will be to me a people, literally. But uh, the word we highlighted was this word, let me find it, see if I can zoom in, right there, 
I will put my laws, my namus, which is the plural for the word uh, namas there. I will put the laws of me, the, the namus mu, the, the mu there is, 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 turns it per, uh, personal. Um, the, these are my laws, right? The laws of me. Uh, I will put my laws into their heart and into their minds. But that'll do it for our uh, liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now and watch the short little video for our study night. When the, the video's done, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torchich Ariel and eBible. Of course, copyright Tate's Tor Ministries. Let's look at our question. What does the Bible mean when it refers to a remnant? Well, the question doesn't reference a verse, so I've decided to offer my own. Quote, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation and is for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. End quote. That's, of course, Galatians 6, 15 and 16 from our liturgy. Even though the word remnant is not in this verse, the context of the verse, Israel of God, of this phrase is likely a reference to the remnant of Israel, those Jews and Gentiles, who have faith in Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, and who will someday inherit the everlasting kingdom of God in Christ. I hold to a theology that teaches that the church is actually remnant Israel, and she exists within national Israel. Read Romans 9, 6-8, 23, 24, 11, 1-7, and Philippians 3, 3. I do not espouse to a view that separates remnant Israel from the church. Let's see what this would look like. Let's draw a blue circle on the left and label it National Israel. Let's draw a red circle on the right and label it Gentile Nations. Let's overlap the two circles. And in the slice in the middle, let's call that Remnant Israel, a.k.a. the Church. For Paul, the ecclesia, that is the Church, existed within Israel, not outside of Israel. All right. Moreover, since all in Remnant Israel have faith in the true word of the Lord, members of Remnant Israel have existed since the earliest of times up until today. This means Father Abraham, whose faith was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15:6 and Romans 4:3, Romans 4:9, 4:11, 4:22, and Galatians 3:6, was also a member of Remnant Israel. Are you guys catching this? Remnant Israel has been around for a while. Allow me to exegete Galatians 6.16 to substantiate my position. Since this verse follows immediately after verse 15, I take the term, quote, this rule, to refer to the standard of forensic righteousness previously spoken of in verse 15, namely, genuine and lasting covenant membership into the eternal people of God is not procured by one's ethnicity, like first century Israel was teaching, but only by placing one's genuine and lasting faith in Messiah Yeshua. Moreover, it would seem that Shaul or Paul extended this blessing of ultimate peace and mercy exclusively to the group who conformed to this truth, a group Paul identifies as the Israel of God. Christian sources, the pulpit commentary, Gill's exposition of the Bible, Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible commentary, they all agree that the Israel of God is not the Israel after the flesh, 
but the spiritual seed of Abraham by faith. So we got some consistency on who this group is. We see that those whom Paul extends his blessing to in Galatians 6.15 are the genuine faithful remnant, the called out ones, the Greek is ecclesia, viz, the church, from among both Jews and Gentiles to bear the name of Yeshua, the true Messiah, to bring glory to God's name and honor to his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Read Matthew 6.10 and Hebrews 2.12. They are those who have crucified the flesh with its old passions and volitions and walk not by ethnic identity and Torah social status, but by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and the Torah, the law, written on the heart, Read Romans 8, 4, 8, 5, and 13, 14, as well as Galatians 5, 16. It's pretty simple. The Torah is written on the heart by the power of the Spirit, and He's the one that enables us to be able to walk it out. So, what are our conclusions to this short video topic? Israel exists on two levels. There are two levels of Israel. We've got national Israel, which is quite large, and we've got remnant Israel, which is smaller. And in the mystery of ecclesiology, Israel exists on both of these levels simultaneously. Messianic Jews are ethnic Jews as well as remnant Jews. Read Romans 2, 28 and 29. And so we can see that there's these two levels of Israel that are being presented for us in the Bible, national and remnant. But let's let's break this down a little bit. Let's, let's look at both groups groups kind of separately and uh, see what our covenant responsibilities are. National Israel on the flesh of the flesh has been promised temporal this world blessings if she will remain faithful to God and obedient to the written Torah that was given at Sinai. That's national Israel and that's the relationship that God has with national Israel. By comparison, remnant Israel of the spirit has been promised eternal world to come blessings if she will remain faithful to God and obedient to the living Torah, Yeshua the Messiah. That's her exclusive relationship that she has with God and to his Messiah, Yeshua. So we see both of these levels working together, right? Are you guys following along with me? The two Israels are not necessarily mutually exclusive like some people teach. Indeed, God loves national Israel as well as remnant Israel, which actually exists within national Israel. And yet, those who choose to associate with national Israel without also appropriating genuine faith in the quintessential Israelite from Nazareth will find that their this-world blessings will end when life expires for them. And it may not end up being God who will be waiting for them on the other side of the grave if you catch my drift. Yeah, that's good news and bad news. Ultimately, it's bad news. So um, we've really got to uh, wrestle with this and, and come to grips with this, this reality. However, let's look at remnant. Only those who have invested in the world to come blessings via genuine faith in Messiah will be able to enjoy blessings both in this world and in the world to come. And that's the way the two remnant, uh, the two Israels fit together. Hey, head on out to iTunes and catch my podcast. Search for my name, R.L. Hanavi, and you'll find me there in the iTunes store. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channels. Why? I upload new content weekly. In fact, it's sometimes daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you. 
that I have the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students and to bless them and be blessed in the exchange. I thank you that I don't have all the answers, and that's why it's such a privilege to partner and meet with people from around the world in different places who have studied the scriptures, who bring insights to the text that I can glean from, that I can learn from, that I can take my shared understanding, compare it and contrast it with theirs. We can sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron, and we both walk away with a better understanding of the text. Thank you for this opportunity and the um, um, the uh, responsibility of meeting with one another and sharing uh, truths with one another. Continue to go with us, Lord. Bless us. Keep us safe. Keep us healthy. Keep us healed. Keep us safe from this pandemic. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. 